Hello and welcome to Unpacking Power, Privilege and Structural Violence, a collaborative podcast series hosted by the University of Cape Town Faculty of Health Sciences Student Societies. Follow with us as we join the ongoing conversations that are being held around the world about dismantling intersecting oppressive systems and dig into what this means for us in spaces we occupy as Faculty of Health Science students, future health professionals, and members of a complex and unjust social system. This is part two of the three-part podcast series, which will culminate in a live, interactive webinar where series speakers will join us to elaborate on the content shared throughout the series and answer some of the questions that have come up. You can post any and all your questions on the Google form linked in the description. This is the second podcast in the series and is entitled Power and Privilege Dynamics in the Clinical Encounter. In this installment, we, as the UCT Surgical Society and the Rural Support Network, are bringing together three exceptional speakers. Dr. Srikant Peters, Prof. Lydia Cairncross and Vera Flaisi. They are all experts in their field here to discuss and guide the conversation in the necessity of dismantling the structural barriers that persist as remnants of our past, and how we as healthcare practitioners can engage in the conversation. Hello and welcome to all our listeners out there. We are so fortunate to be here today to share this discussion with you. To start off this podcast, we're just going to go through a few introductions and then we'll jump right into it. So first off, my name is Kelsey Bester, and I'm here today as the host representing the UCT Surgical Society. I'm very fortunate to be joined by an exceptional woman who is no stranger to podcasts, my co-host, Asande. Hello, everyone. My name is Asande Velane, and I'm here today as a host representing the Rural Support Network, or as we are often known, RSN. We have a number of amazing speakers here today. Kelsey, do you want to hit us off with some introductions? Perfect. Our first speaker is none other than Dr. Shrikan Peters who was recently on the Heroes of Critiscare page, Facebook page, for those of you that haven't seen yet. Um, Dr. Peters graduated from, uh, with an MBCHB from UCT in 2010 and a BA from UNISA in Politics, Philosophy and Economics in 2014. He's recently qualified as a specialist in public health medicine and um, is currently the medical manager of main theater, ICU and anesthesia at Critiscare Hospital. He is also has a very particular interest in healthcare quality improvement. Welcome, Dr. Peters. Hi, thank you. Our second speaker is the incredible Professor Lydia Cairncross. She is no stranger to surgical society events, and we will keep inviting her back for as long as she'll have us. Professor Cairncross is a senior consultant at Hrudeskia Hospital and the University of Cape Town, and is the head of the Surgical Oncology Unit, which is breast, endocrine, and sarcoma, in the Division of General Surgery. She's also heavily involved in activism as a part of the People's Health Movement of South Africa. Um, Prof, I found this quote from an article written about you speaking about your family and how you became an, an activist in South Africa, saying they were committed to remaking the world into a more just and egalitarian place. I thus came to medicine via the lens of social justice and not the other way around. And so we're very grateful to have you here today. Added to that dynamic duo, we have our third speaker, 
Vera Slaisi is a powerhouse who is no stranger to all things empowerment and transformation. She's an audiologist by profession, currently working at the University of Cape Town as a multiple award-winning clinician, lecturer, and health researcher in her field. Vera is also a healthcare leader serving in executive boards of the South African Association of Audiologists, as well as the Western Cape Department of Health Facilities Board for the Khutuskir Hospital. She is particularly passionate about youth empowerment to increase transformation and development in South Africa and Africa as a whole. We are so glad to have you here. Thank you for having me, ladies. Okay, now that we've met all of our amazing powerhouse speakers and all of those leaders in healthcare today, we're going to head straight into this hot topic discussion. South Africa has a very long history of structural violence and overt racism in the line of colonialism and the apartheid era. This history plays into structural issues that affect South Africans today. Dr. Peters, as a practicing healthcare worker, what have your experiences been in observing these structural barriers that patients face when accessing healthcare? Hi, thanks very much for the question. Um, so I think the first thing that I realized and, and, and Prof Kim Cross touched on it, you know, she came into uh, medicine via social justice. And, and I have to say it's the other way for me. I came into social justice via medicine. That's how I ended up in public health medicine. And, and really what a career in medicine uh, as a junior doctor will, will teach you is powers of observation. Um, and you guys know how to see one, do one, teach one. I think that's still how it is. Um, but you really, you leave tertiary academic care, you leave Cape Town, um, and you go out into the world uh, in all of its um, sort of gory glory. Um, things will... Uh, will appear to you that, that never did before and will not appear to other people that live and work in this country. Um, we're relatively privileged having gone to school, finished university degrees, um, and then get out into a, to a, the working world where we have access to very good salaries, I can say, as doctors or healthcare providers. Um, and you deliver service to people in communities which are underprivileged, um, dispossessed, um, and completely powerless um, to deal with the, the burden of disease um, which, they, they, which they're faced with. But that word that you use, structural violence, um, is something that might not, um, uh, might not occur to most people uh, unless you've paid attention in your CHH courses, or CPI courses as they were known once upon a time. Um, we all understand direct violence. We understand when someone is being racist to us or calls us a pejorative name, and you can clearly label it. Um, something which you would not um, you know, readily see is structural violence. And the fact that it is actually, when you, you say the word structural violence, it seems to be uh, a paradox. You know, violence is something which is done. It's something you can see, it's visceral. Um, if you were to look at our, uh, if you take the referral system or the levels of referral, right? We understand in the PC world that we've got primary health care, we've got secondary level of care and tertiary care, right? And PHC is not this, um, uh, uh, it's not inferior care, we're always told that. Um, tertiary care is just, you know, part of the chain in a PHC approach. 
if you go to these uh, to, to these now newly created district health systems the last 20 years, uh, if I had to give you the example of the Peter Marisburg complex, so you've got uh, clinics, you've got district level hospitals, and then you've got the tertiary center. Um, and it, it threads together nicely and supposedly you, you move between the different levels um, very easily according to protocols. But before 1994 and in the, in the 1980s, these weren't known as tertiary centers or, or primary and district centers. They were known as um, the white and the non-white hospitals. And, and, and it makes you sit back and think. Um, where I worked as an intern was Addington Hospital. And uh, my mother, who's a family physician, would have, would have killed to work there. But you, can't, you couldn't work there as a non-white doctor and you couldn't be there as a patient. Um, you actually had to be, uh, there, was a, there were some very astute politicians that rolled in the first non-white patient into what was then a tertiary center. Um, so it, it is hard baked into the system uh, and it's hard baked into our consciousness uh, as to what is acceptable for different people and different classes of people. Um, as an intern, you'll realize that because even though um, as a democracy, people have political and civil rights, um, the socioeconomics doesn't necessarily follow with that. And you'll be busy treating people who have been disadvantaged for generations. So yeah, your powers of observation come through and you will definitely understand structural violence as a clinical doctor, even though you might not have as a student. Thank you so much for elaborating on that experience that you had about the powers of observation and also just making it more tangible for us to understand when you came in there with those personal anecdotes about what structural violence actually means outside of those CHH readings, which sometimes is the last time you ever hear of it. So bouncing off from that, can you tell us more about how intersectionality within the context of South Africa affects access to clinical care and the experience of care in patients? So, so then when you talk about access, right, um, there are many different dimensions to access to care. Um, so the various frameworks that you can use to, to look at it, uh, and there's, a, there's, a, there's five A's that you can remember. Um, and it, it's all linked to how easy is it to get to where I need to go to. Um, so when we talk about access, we talk about availability. Um, in your area, is there, are there, um, services are there professionals that can actually service your need um, and if you look at the the cape province or the western cape we're currently having to do outreach into the northern cape into the eastern cape into the free state as far as that simply because some services don't exist um, either in rural areas or in other places where services have have collapsed um, in the western cape we're pretty lucky in that the province in itself never contained um, what would have been known as, as, as homelands. Um, now, if you imagine the Eastern Cape or, or Gauteng, parts of Natal, had to be stitched together, uh, which were the old uh, colonial provinces of Natal and the Cape province. Um, and they had to actually stitch together these different um, homeland authorities and provinces, um, which unfortunately at times left very fragile health systems in their wake. The Western Cape was always part of Cape province, but was always um, whole. And so we maintained our clinical protocols, our referral systems, as well as the, this wealth of knowledge um, and expertise which you guys have access to as students in Cape Town. So it, your, your access to care is very much dependent on that, on the second level uh, of access, which is known as accessibility. Literally, 
how close are you to uh, to a a tertiary facility how close are you to your local community health center um, and what is the infrastructure that will allow you to get there there are certain places in the country where ambulances will not go um, firstly they, they can't go because they, they, they can't drive between um, informal settlement shacks and some uh, some uh, companies who are not um, allowed to go there simply because of the crime rate in that area but obviously that affects the level of access that, that um, patients have in those areas. Um, we all can understand affordability so affordability of care is uh, the biggest it's, it's probably the, the, the most uh, pertinent issue prior to COVID um, in the world globally and, and you can see this with um, America trying to pass the Affordable Care Act um, and South Africa trying with NHI, um, and obviously it being uh, derisively uh, called Obamacare. Uh, I'm not sure what it's called in South Africa, but uh, I know that there are many vested interests that would not like to see NHI happen. Um, but we know, uh, for instance, that of the 8% the that's spent on healthcare or, or more, um, about 50% of that money um, is, spent on the private sector which is about 16 percent of the population and 50 percent of that money is spent on 84 percent of the population so it's it's a massive difference and you can see it in in the infrastructure available in the private sector versus public um, it's actually been a, a, a sort of a change in COVID times where there's no space anywhere in public or private for patients and you actually have to compete for the same level of beds now, uh, the biggest issue with this is, yes, there is the access to healthcare based on what you can pay, but we know that by and large, what you can pay was determined by the color of your skin for a very long time. Uh, and those inequalities still persist, um, which is something we need to change as a country. Wow. Thank you so much for like breaking down the, the idea of access to care into its specific dimensions. Um, and I also think that on that note, then to discuss now that we understand the dimensions of access to care, um, Prof. Cairncross, could you possibly explain for us how these barriers to access um, change as you ascend the levels of care? Yes, thank you very much. Thanks, Sri. That that was a, thanks, Kelsey and Sri. That was a great um, um, start to this. And and just to say that you know to to reiterate the the title of this podcast, which is really powerful, I think, which is power and privilege dynamics in the clinical encounter. Um, and even though we, we work with this every day and we're aware of it, I think um, thinking around preparing for this makes us really unpack where those intersect with our daily work. So when thinking about structural barriers to, to surgical care, um, what immediately came to mind was um, the Group Areas Act um, and the 400 plus years of um, racist segregation um, that we've experienced as a country. So as Srikant was explaining that access starts off with being able to get to a quality facility and the quality of health facility would depend on the area and the area that you stay would be determined by the color of your skin. Um, and to our shame, uh, 25 years later, that is still very much the case in South Africa and very much in Cape Town, we're a deeply segregated city. Um, so the first aspect of access is that the high quality health centers where um, surgical care is usually delivered were outside of communities 
which um, the black poor majority um, live in at the moment. And the second thing that came to mind is that um, part of access is, is knowledge about when to access care. So it's about what is the health seeking behavior um, of a person, which connects into our understanding of, of health of our bodies um, and the sense of when to know that something is wrong and we need to seek care. And I think across the board, health literacy in South Africa is quite low, but it is particularly low um, where there has been deliberate um, under and miseducation as has happened in large sections of, of the black community through the history of Bantu education um, and, and other um, educational practices from the Purvudian era and so on. We're not that far out from those times. So um, knowing when to seek care, um, being far away from care facilities, and then a sense of agency um, that you have the right to care and you have a right to be treated well and you have the right to access um, what you need in terms of, of your health um, is also different depending on, on race and class. And I think in South Africa, because um, race and class have really um, developed together uh, racial capitalism, that, that the wealth of this country is really built on, on, on racial ideology. Um, and because we haven't disaggregated that, we have this ongoing coincidence of, of race and class. Um, and what that really means is that without a counter ideology and an anti-racist narrative and an anti-racist um, movement, it is impossible for, for people to understand the innate prejudices um, that they carry with them every day. So where I'm getting to with this now is that clinicians in, in daily practice make judgments and make decisions that are based on assumptions about people, which is based on the way that they look without realizing it. Um, it's um, unconscious bias. We've described it very well in the educational arena, but it's not that well described in the clinical arena, but it happens. And it's, it's, it's both race and class and language. So it impacts on who waits longer for an operation. Um, who happened to get their operation a little bit earlier on the booking list. When patients do come in, which are the patients that get cancelled and which are the patients that somehow we manage to, to get done on the list? Uh, which are the patients that access high care and ICU and which don't? Um, which are the patients that get analgesia and antiemetics at higher levels? And So it sounds shocking to say these things, but... Um, if which patients get reconstruction after their breast cancer. So it's a combination of patients having agency, so asking and demanding it, those that would and those that wouldn't, and the unconscious bias, which allows us to, to see only certain kinds of people as people like us, and the unconscious bias that, that we do when we distribute the health resource, which is really what we're doing on a daily basis as clinicians. Um, so I'll stop there, and there's more to unpack on that, but I think the, the, the geographical structural issues, the, um, the agency and, and health literacy of people, and then the unconscious bias um, and unconscious prejudice that clinicians have and how that impacts on access to care. Thanks. Wow. Um, I noted you were, uh, you mentioned um, access to anesthesia and um, antiemetics. Do you mind um, discussing a little bit more about how access to perioperative care affects the surgical outcomes of patients? Sure, so, so perioperative care 
is the care before, during, and and after surgery. Um, and I think I've unpacked some of the preoperative journey and the access to surgery itself. And in the postoperative care, it's those first few days are are really critical to to recovery. We know that uh, management of analgesia is important for mobilization. Um, it's important for the prevention of chronic pain syndromes later. Um, it's got an important impact on preventing a um, pronounced an inflammatory response within patients. And then just outside of the immediate very operative period, rehabilitation is really important. So access to physiotherapy, occupational therapy, um, and also psychological support. If you, if you think outside of our public sector, not only within the hospitals that we have, we're obviously talking about unconscious bias and prejudice within hospitals that we work in, but as a whole health system, your access to post-operative rehabilitation within a private system would be very different to that within a state system, assuming you could afford it, of course, in the private system because it has its own problems. So um, the, the, the continuum of care and the completion of your care journey which includes that important rehabilitation process, will often um, be prejudiced against by both economics and, and in, the, in the case of South Africa, therefore also race. That was such a powerful note to end off on. I really liked on how you touched on rehabilitative care and how there are actually various factors that affect that degree of care and what some of the negative outcomes can be. That was really eye-opening. So just to recap, we have discussed how South Africa's history has created barriers to access to healthcare and how we can examine that when, how that has led to practices of discrimination and how it affects not only patients, but also healthcare workers. On that note, we would like to turn to Vera Shahisi, who can highlight for us the discrimination faced by both patients and healthcare workers. As we mentioned earlier on, um, Vera, you have experience both within clinical practice as an audiologist, as well as experience with training future healthcare practitioners as a lecturer and a researcher. What have your experiences been within this capacity around covert racism and structural violence in the South African context? Thank you, uh, Kelsey. Um, I think it's, it's quite a wide question, but if we look at what Dr. Peters and Prof. Ken Cross have already covered, there's a lot that I could give examples of. Um, I will start with uh, the first part of the question on covert racism. Um, I think, you know, it's very easy, at least in a South African background, to recognize, you know, the more overt racism, if someone uses a K word, if someone, you know, does something that everybody around you um, can immediately pick up that, no, that is not correct. However, when you talk about covert racism, I think the first thing that I experienced in my young clinical career, straight out of varsity, was when someone, whether it is a superior or a patient, treats you in a way where you can feel something is off, but the first thing that you um, start feeling, especially under the premise of, you know, being a young black woman is, oh, am I being too sensitive? Um, should you be talking to me like that? So I'll give a, a practical example. Many a times, if I am in a ward round or within the hospital, um, you know, you will have patients that come directly to you and say, hi, sorry, can you please direct me to, um, I want to see the audiologist. You know, mind you, you're standing there, you have your full, you know, scrubs on with the tag that says audiologist, um, but patients are quite um, 
I, I don't know. At first, I used to think, you know, maybe they, you know, it's an, it's an elderly Caucasian lady who, you know, maybe she's not seeing problems. No, no, I'm the audiologist. Oh, I was just wondering if I could see someone who would be able to speak to me in my language that I'd be uh, comfortable with. So, for example, the issues that I ended up facing are you don't look like, you know, you are the person who should know. You don't look like you should be the bearer of the healthcare or the distributor of healthcare, if I, if I should steal um, Prof's words, number one. Number two, instead of calling out what I'm actually saying, I'm going to use a proxy. I'm going to ask for someone who can speak Afrikaans or um, someone I could be more culturally um, you know, comfortable with. And, and other times I've also had instances where patients or even in boardrooms where you are asked to serve in a committee of some sort and, and, and they, they blatantly say, we're looking for someone with more experience. So it comes out, you know, as ageism, it comes out um, as, as, as using languages as a proxy. And oftentimes um, I've also had many a job interviews where if I do get the job right at interview mode, I'll tell you, if you do proceed, you might have to fix your hair. Um, it might not necessarily be something that's professional. You might also want to make sure that you are not sounding as assertive or as aggressive. Um, so right down to how you sound, how you speak, how you look, how you present yourself. And, and when you cross compare notes between colleagues, oh, how did the interview go? Oh, no, they were giving me tips on how to do a clinical examination with patients. I'm like, oh, I was being given notes on how my hair looks and how I shouldn't be so assertive and aggressive when I present myself to patients or, you know, have patients that ask you, you know, if, for example, I've worked in private patients that ask you, Hey, is anyone going to bring me the coffee? Is the coffee machine working? And you ask yourself, why would you think I'm the coffee lady? So it, it's, it's, it's a lot of intersecting issues that, you know, cut across culture, language. And, and for me, I've experienced those and those have been sort of my representation of COVID racism. Um, if you look at the structural violence, I think Dr. Peters covered it uh, very well um, in his explanation on what is structural violence and how does it present itself um, in the clinical context. And I've experienced it so in, in my work in, in, in public health care where there are patients who just they don't know any better, they don't have any access to it. And, you know, based on how you were taught in the very privileged circumstances of, you know, UCT Health Sciences, you know, you're taught prevention is better than cure and you cannot possibly understand why someone else doesn't have a health-seeking behavior and the personal agency to want to do better. Um, for example, in audiology, we work with hearing healthcare and, you know, something as sensitive and as um, critical as your hearing and speaking ability, you would think that is the first thing that you would want to, you know, to go see someone about and talk to someone about, but you have um, generational oppression that has weighed down the voice of um, a certain class of society that if I'm not bleeding, if I'm not dying, I must be fine. You know, I can't be complaining. Um, and also, even if you do happen to be um, the select few that speak out as a patient, 
you are then weighed down by the issue of access, the issue of affordability, um, and also just the issue of understanding the many layers of the healthcare system. And it can be quite frustrating. And we, you know, racism aside, we cannot look beyond the many ills of our health system that could be an extra layer of frustration, especially when you are in a particular socioeconomic class, um, like uh, Dr. Peters uh, said earlier. Thank you so much for sharing your personal experiences of COVID racism in the, in the, in the healthcare system that we, we are in today. Um, it's as, and as you, you brought up the example of, of patients experiencing the same as well. Um, and I was wondering, um, you, you said that discrimination, well, you were describing how discrimination can affect patients and healthcare workers in, in maybe different ways. Do you mind speaking to us about like the patient experience um, a little more? Yeah, so I will speak to you about a particular case um, that um, I think is one of the most poignant, you know, poignant cases that I, I came across um, in the public health sector. It was a young little girl. Um, she was 14 and um, she had gone through several um, instances of uh, sexual abuse and um, she was being shunned by sort of her community for, you know, the many various <laughs> layers that are attached to, you know, being a female and, and sexuality and, you know, gender-based violence. That's, that's not necessarily the, the point of the example, but the, the, the key here was when we are discussing the case. So we're sitting, we're in MDT, multidisciplinary team of professionals, um, a lot of the questions that were being asked by, um, you know, the Caucasian uh, colleagues was, yeah, but, you know, what was she doing? Where was she? Why didn't she just tell her mom? You know, and, you, and, 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 you know, it's, it's almost victim shaming and victim blaming in a way. And, and look, we could write that off as, oh, you know what, that's just, you know, people's perceptions and cultural perceptions um, and also just societal uh, misgivings about gender-based violence. But these are the same colleagues who, if the race of the child were different, we would be doing home visits um, to, to, to someone else who just had, you know, not to lessen um, experiences, but someone who had um, a case of emotional abuse. But to this little girl, we're being asked questions of, yeah, but why didn't she just go to the clinic? Um, why, you know, why was she being sexually active so young? Um, and, and I found that there was, this, there was a very high level of sexualizing the victim and blaming the victim, whereas in other cases, that was, you know, that was not necessarily the case. And the issues that we were discussing, those were not even the clinical issues that she came in for. She came in and we're trying to discuss what are we going to do because she didn't have a guardian, she's about to give birth, and she also happens to be deaf. That is why um, at least the social services believed that she was being a target because she couldn't speak and she couldn't hear, and she was a target in the community for many um, of the male predators. But the questions that were being asked by some of the professionals were completely um, out of line and and you know as a young clinician you want to be an advocate but you you sit and and if I steal from Dr. Peters you're observing like oh so are these the questions that we ask for these type of patients but you know for other type of patients we you know we're booking them in you know the peds neurologist has to see them the psychologist has to see them but for other patients we're asking ourselves why is this patient here? So, so those kind of, 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 
of examples for me were quite clear that, you know, perhaps it's an unconscious bias um, and, 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 and sometimes it's not as covert to some, uh, to some professionals. The last example I will give in terms of discrimination, I don't know whether some professionals are aware or not aware, um, especially in the community um, of deaf people. We often give oral or verbal counseling. Um, and, and, and I think in the last 20 odd years of our democracy, we've, we've had you know, linguistic diversity in how we give patient education um, and, and, and education materials. But there's a subsection of the community that if you so happen to be born deaf, um, you can't read or write in English because then that would be your second or third additional language because visual sign language would be your first primary language. You know? And so you just have to be the deaf patient that nobody knows how to speak to and for me that is a, a high level um, of racism that we are excluding you know a, a part of, of of, of society. Same thing with people with physical disabilities. There's so many things that structurally just haven't evolved to consider, oh, what happens if a blind patient comes to see me in my consulting room? What happens, you know, if, if a paraplegic comes to see me in, you know, in my consulting room? So discrimination for me that I have seen has not just been on, 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 the, issue, on, on, on the issue of race. It's just been discrimination across the band where we are looking at the patient mainly for the disease of the diagnosis and not necessarily as the holistic individual and considering how is this more accessible and open for the patient? Is this patient-centered? Thank you. It just Your passion for patient-centered care just comes through so bright. And I just wanted to, to jump on that and say, you know, we know you strongly advocate for patient-centered care. And however, this doesn't always happen. And maybe if you could just speak to a few of the aforementioned structural factors that negatively affect this patient-centered care. Um, so, it, I mean, if we look at patient-centered care, I think in research and maybe in the academic circles, PCC um, as an abbreviation has become sort of the new buzzword, right? It's the new cool thing. Um, but if we look back to government policies, you know, it's it's been entrenched in our systems as a gold standard. And, and, and to me, I learned it first as what is called Batupele principles. Um, and it's a Sutu um, or of a Sutu origin. I can't, I'm not sure which uh, Sutu derivative language, but um, to say people first, Batupele. And I think a lot of times, as health professionals, rehab, medical, and support staff, we often are so focused on the diagnosis and our contribution to alleviating that diagnosis that you forget. So for example, I always say to my students, oh, fantastic, you saw an ear infection today. What was it, in a box? Um, did they mail you this ear infection that you treated? Um, you know, and we, we so happily can dissect the diagnosis in so many ways. But if I ask you what makes this patient different to the one that you treated with an ear infection, you know, three weeks ago, uh, you know, students are at a loss for words. So it, it's even entrenched in how we teach. We are so heavily focused on how can we cure Instead, how instead of looking at the lifestyle, um, the one particular area that I think, for example, structural violence and, and, and just the history of, of South Africa's context is when you look at information and education, I think um, both Dr. Peters and, 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 and Prof have alluded to the fact that if you just don't know, 
there's so much that you get cut out of. So for example, part of the patient-centered principles is patient um, consent and making sure you know you 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 are informing them and they're giving you their full consent. If you look at just the concept of consent, you cannot consent to something you don't understand. And I find a lot of times as healthcare professionals, when we're doing a lot of procedures, we are not interested in obtaining consent. We are interested in obtaining permission to continue with a treatment approach that we have already decided on that is best for the patient. You know, oftentimes we don't discuss, here are your options, think about it, go discuss it with your family um, and come back to me, ask questions and then we decide. No, it's often a, this is a treatment that you're getting, come back after six weeks, you know. And, and even when you do explain, the reality is the jargon of the language, the, the, the implied uh, literacy levels for someone to actually understand when they're giving consent for a surgery is so high that when you ask someone, do you have an allergy? I had this personal experience. I took my grandmom um, to a consultation and they asked her if she had allergies and she didn't understand the word. And I didn't know how to translate that to her because I, I, I just didn't have, you know, another word in my own language for allergy. And we just said no, because, well, <laughs> you know, and that reality for me, you know, just looking at patient consent, every time you ask someone, can I continue? And they just nod. It's, it's often just permission and not actual informed, considered consent. And for me, that's one of the biggest things that patients are, you know, are, are, are missing out on just purely because of Number one, literacy in South Africa, never mind health literacy um, as a subsection. And I think we have a lot of work to do for many subsections um, of our population. Thank you so much. That was so powerful. Like just listening to all those anecdotes, it really just took me back again to what Dr. Peters mentioned earlier on with the powers of observation and how, like you said, you don't just mail an ear infection in a box. That ear infection is a person, community has relationships and so forth that we actually need to take into account. And I also really liked how things can get lost in translation because, again, those are some of the other barriers that we face when trying to provide equitable healthcare to our patients. This marks the end of part one of episode two. Take a break, reflect, and join us for part two of episode two.